Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story, The Unkindest Blow, by H. H. Monroe. The season of strikes seemed to have run itself to a standstill. Almost every trade and industry and calling in which a dislocation could possibly be engineered had indulged in that luxury. The last and least successful convulsion had been the strike of the world's Union of Zoological Garden Attendants, who, pending the settlement of certain demands, refused to minister further to the wants of the animals committed to their charge, or to allow any other keepers to take their place. In this case, the threat of the Zoological Garden's authorities that if the men came out, the animals should come out, also had intensified and precipitated the crisis. The imminent prospects of the larger carnivores, to say nothing of rhinoceroses and bull bison, roaming at large and unfed in the heart of London, was not one which permitted of prolonged conferences. The government of the day, which, from its tendency to be a few hours behind the course of events, had been nicknamed the government of the afternoon, had been obliged to intervene with promptitude and decision. A strong force of blue jackets was dispatched to Regent's Park to take over the temporarily abandoned duties of the strikers. Blue jackets were chosen in preference to land forces, partly on account of the traditional readiness of the British Navy to go anywhere and do anything, partly by reason of the familiarity of the average sailor with monkeys, parrots, and other tropical fauna but chiefly at the urgent request of the First Lord of the Admiralty, who is keenly desirous of an opportunity for performing some personal act of unobtrusive public service within the province of his department. If he insists on feeding the infant jaguar himself in defiance of his mother's wishes, there may be another by-election in the North, said one of his colleagues, with a hopeful inflection in his voice. By-electors are not very desirable at present, but we must not be selfish. As a matter of fact, the strike collapsed peacefully without any outside intervention. The majority of the keepers had become so attached to their charges that they returned to work of their own accord. And then the nation and the newspapers turned with a sense of relief to happier things. It seemed as if a new era of contentment was about to dawn. Everybody had struck who could possibly want to strike, or who could be possibly be cajoled or bullied into striking, whether they wanted to or not. The lighter and brighter side of life might now claim some attention. And conspicuous among the other topics that sprang into sudden prominence was the pending Fulvertoon divorce suit. The Duke of Fulvertoon was one of those human hors d'oeuvres that stimulate the public appetite for sensation without giving it much to feed on. As a mere child, he had been precociously brilliant, 
He had declined the editorship of the Anglian Review at an age when most boys are content to have declined Mensa. A table, and though he could not claim to have originated the futurist movement in literature, his letters to a possible grandson, written at the age of 14, had attracted considerable notice. In later days, his brilliancy had been less conspicuously displayed. During a debate in the House of Lords, affairs in Morocco, at a moment when that country, for the fifth time in seven years, had brought half Europe to the verge of war, he had interpolated the remark, a little more and how much it is. But in spite of the encouraging reception accorded to this one political utterance, he was never tempted to a further display in that direction. It began to be generally understood that he did not intend to supplement his numerous town and country residences by living ever so much in the public eye. And then had come the unlooked-for tidings of the imminent proceedings for divorce. And such a divorce. There were cross-suits and allegations and counter-allegations, charges of cruelty and desertion, everything, in fact, that was necessary to make the case one of the most complicated and sensational of its kind and the number of distinguished people involved or cited as witnesses not only embraced both political parties and the realm and several colonial governors, but included an exotic contingent from France, Hungary, the United States of North America, and the Grand Duchy of Baden. Hotel accommodation of the more expensive sort began to experience a strain on its resources. It will be quite like the Durbar without the elephants, exclaimed an enthusiastic lady who, to do her just, had never seen a Durbar. The general feeling was one of thankfulness that the last of the strikes had been got over before the date fixed for the hearing of the great suit. As a reaction from the season of gloom and industrial strife that had just passed away, the agencies that journey in stage-managed sensations laid themselves out to do their level best on this momentous occasion. Men who had made their reputations as special descriptive writers were mobilized from distant corners of Europe and the further side of the Atlantic in order to enrich with their pens the daily printed records of the case. One word painter who specialized in descriptions of how witnesses turned pale under cross-examination was summoned hurriedly back from a famous and prolonged murder trial in Sicily, where indeed his talents were being decidedly wasted. Thumbnail artists and expert Kodak manipulators were retained at extravagant salaries, and special dress reporters were in high demand. An enterprising Paris firm of costume builders presented the defendant Duchess with three special creations, to be worn, marked, learned, and extensively reported at various critical stages of the trial. And as for the cinematograph agents, their industry and persistence was untiring. Films representing the Duke saying goodbye to his favorite canary on the eve of the trial were in readiness weeks before the event was due to take place. Other films depicted the Duchess holding imaginary consultations with fictitious lawyers or making a light repast off specially advertised vegetarian sandwiches during a supposed luncheon interval. As far as human foresight and human enterprise could go, nothing was lacking to make the trial a success. Two days before the case was down for hearing, the advance reporter of an important syndicate obtained an interview with the Duke 
for the purpose of gleaning some final grains of information concerning His Grace's personal arrangements during the trial. I suppose I may say this will be one of the biggest affairs of its kind during the lifetime of a generation, began the reporter, as an excuse for the unsparing minuteness of detail that he was about to make quest for. I suppose so, if it comes off, said the Duke lazily. If, queried the reporter, in a voice that was something between a gasp and a scream. The Duchess and I are both thinking of going on strike, said the Duke. Strike? The baleful word flashed out in all its old hideous familiarity. Was there to be no end to its recurrence? Do you mean, faltered the reporter, that you are contemplating a mutual withdrawal of the charges? Precisely, said the Duke. But, but think of the arrangements that have been made. The special reporting, the cinematographs, the catering for the distinguished foreign witnesses, the prepared musical allusions. Think of all the money that has been sunk. Exactly, said the Duke coldly. The Duchess and I have realized that it is we who provide the material out of which this great far-reaching industry has been built up. Widespread employment will be given and enormous profits made during the duration of the case. And we, on whom all the stress and racket falls, will get, what, an unenviable notoriety and the privilege of paying heavy legal expenses whichever way the verdict goes. Hence, our decision to strike. We don't wish to be reconciled. We fully realize that it is a grave step to take. But unless we get some reasonable consideration out of this vast stream of wealth and industry that we have called into being, we intend coming out of court and staying. Good afternoon. The news of this latest strike spread universal dismay. Its inaccessibility to the ordinary methods of persuasion made it peculiarly formidable. If the Duke and Duchess persisted in being reconciled, the government could hardly be called on to interfere. Public opinion in the shape of social ostracism might be brought to bear on them, but that was as far as coercive measures could go. There was nothing for it but a conference, with powers to propose liberal terms. As it was, several of the foreign witnesses had already departed, and others had telegraphed cancelling their hotel arrangements. Isn't that wonderful? It's good that the Duke and Duchess decided to stay together, even if it comes at the expense of a vast industrial complex that is solely built on others' misery. Maybe we all take a look at that next time we're flipping through the tabloids of the supermarket or are reading the latest uh, thing that was passed around on social media. Perhaps it's best to not give them that much power. They don't know what to do with it. But I know what to do with this. Our next story. The History of Five Little Pigs by Joseph Martin Kronheim The Little Pig Who Went to Market 
There was once a family of five little pigs, and Mrs. Pig, their mother, loved them all very dearly. Some of these pigs were very good and took a great deal of trouble to please her. The oldest pig was so active and useful that he was called Mr. Pig. One day, he went to market with his cart full of vegetables. But Rusty the donkey began to show his bad temper before he had gone very far on the road. All the coaxing and whipping could not make him move. So Mr. Pig took him out of the shafts, and being very strong, drew the cart to market himself. When he got there, all the other pigs began to laugh. But they did not laugh so loudly when Mr. Pig told them all his struggles on the road. Mr. Pig lost no time in selling his vegetables, and very soon after Rusty came trotting into the marketplace, and as he now seemed willing to take his place in the cart, Mr. Pig started for home without delay. When he got there, he told Mrs. Pig his story, and she called him her best and most worthy son. The little pig who stayed at home. This little pig very much wanted to go with his brother, but as he was so mischievous that he could not be trusted far away, his mother made him stay at home and told him to keep a good fire while she went out to the millers to buy some flour. But as soon as he was alone, instead of learning his lessons, he began to tease the poor cat. Then he got the bellows and cut the leather with a knife so as to see where the wind came from, and when he could not find this out, he began to cry. After this, he broke all his brother's toys. He forced the drumstick through the drum. He tore off the tail from the kite, and then pulled off the horse's head. And then he went to the cupboard and ate the jam. When Mrs. Pig came home, she sat down by the fire, and being very tired, she soon fell asleep. No sooner had she done so than this bad little pig got a long handkerchief and tied her in her chair. But soon she awoke and found out all the mischief that he had been doing. She saw at once the damage that he had done to his brother's playthings. So she quickly brought out her thickest and heaviest birch and gave this naughty little pig such a beating as he did not forget for a long time. The Little Pig Who Had Roast Beef This little pig was a very good and careful fellow. He gave his mother scarcely any trouble and always took a pleasure in doing all she bade him. Here you see him sitting down with clean hands and face to some nice roast beef, while his brother, the idle pig, who is standing on a stool in the corner with the dunce's cap on, has none. He sat down and quietly learned his lesson, and asked his mother to hear him repeat it. And this he did so well that Mrs. Pig stroked him on the ears and forehead, and called him a good little pig. After this, he asked her to allow him to help her make. He brought everything she wanted and lifted off the kettle from the fire, without spilling a drop, either on his toes or the carpet. By and by, he went out after asking his mother's leave to play with his hoop. He had not gone far when he saw an old blind pig who, with his hat in his hand, was crying at the loss of his dog. So he put his hand in his pocket and found a halfpenny which he gave to the poor old pig. It was for such thoughtful conduct as this 
that his mother often gave this little pig roast beef. We now come to the little pig who had none. The little pig who had none. This was a most obstinate and willful little pig. His mother had set him to learn his lesson, but no sooner had she gone out into the garden that he tore his book into pieces. When his mother came back, he ran off into the streets to play with other idle little pigs like himself. After this, he quarreled with one of the pigs and got a sound thrashing. Being afraid to go home, he stayed out till it was quite dark and caught a severe cold. So he was taken home and put to bed and had to take a lot of nasty physic. The little pig who cried wee 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 all the way home. This little pig went fishing. Now he had been told not to go into Farmer Grumpy's grounds, who did not allow anyone to fish in his part of the river. But in spite of what he had been told, this foolish little pig went. He soon caught a very large fish, and while he was trying to carry it home, Father Grumpy came running along with his great whip. He quickly dropped the fish, but the farmer caught him, and as he laid his whip over his back for some time, the little pig ran off, crying, Wee, 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 all the way home. That's the history of the five little pigs. I never knew that story. Did you? Do you remember that? Playing with your toes, talking about your toes as piggies. I do remember that as a child. I also remember having great, great stories to listen to. And you can listen to some great stories of Audible. From audiobooks to podcasts from A to Z. Audible has what you need. Enter BBJ in the promo code and it will do absolutely nothing because this is not a sponsored read. I would like to thank you for helping to spread the word about this little podcast. And I'm always on the lookout for great new stories to feature on the show. If you have an idea, please email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) 